Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. That is, uh, as, I, as I said we're, last week, we're talking about an uh, unpleasant uh, chapter in Jewish history, to say the least, but uh, it's very important uh, in the accounting for how we got to where we are today, number one. And number two, it's the three weeks. And so this is the time for looking at our unpleasant past in the hope that we will not reproduce it in the present or the future. Uh, I spoke last time about the beginnings of this uh, terrible strife, which is why I entitled this From Hanukkah to Tisha B'av, because uh, the argument I'm making is that you can find a, a continuous uh, thread of uh, terrible uh, argument and conflict uh, in the Jewish people um, from the period of Maccabean Revolt uh, down to and culminating in the destruction of the uh, Second Temple, destruction of the base of Migdash, and, uh, and not afterwards, and uh, not that much before, which is uh, very interesting. And so uh, it behooves us to uh, try to understand this. If you want to understand it historically, you take it from the beginning and follow it through. You don't understand the developments of it. So, without any further ado, what I left off last time was with the Jewish people in Eretz Yisrael having established a state of Israel. Uh, for better or worse. In other words, with its pluses and its minuses. And um, in spite of the fact that the Jews were able, under the Maccabees and their successors, the Hashemunayim, to establish, as I just said, through a lot of wars and hard struggles and things like that, a uh, substantial Jewish state, and that's it on the map over here. Yeah, whoops. There you go. Uh, started out like this and then expanded to all this. This is the conquest of the Hashemunayim, as I mentioned last time, whether it's uh, John Herkinus, Yochin Kongado, or Aristobulus, or Alexander Yanai, uh, whatever other things they did, the Jewish people did uh, reconquer in uh, decades of uh, continual conflicts and bitter sieges and things like that, the whole of the historical Eretz Yisrael, and even more. Now, uh, on the other hand, the period was marred by uh, tremendous civil strife in that tens of thousands of Jews killed each other, as we saw last time, over the course of these decades. Um, over questions of religion and national policy, to put it in shorthand, the Prussian and the Sadduk and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But it wasn't simply two different sets of opinions, that of course it was, but that these two sets of opinions expressed themselves in a terrifically violent uh, conflict. But if this was true under uh, the three rulers that we talked about, uh, John Herkinus and then um, Aristobulus, Judah Aristobulus, and then Alexander Yanai, three of whom were Kohanim, Kohen Godos, the descendants of the Maccabees, um, and yet at the same time had this checkered relationship with the, uh, what shall we say, the Frum Jews. Uh, the fourth ruler was a queen, uh, Shlomus Alexandra, and without recapitulating everything, when she came into power as a result of the death of her husband, and that's what happened, she commanded the army. She had the uh, loyalty of the power structure. Um, so she must have been quite a remarkable person, although we know almost nothing, very, very little about her. Uh, she decided, as a matter of state policy, to uh, transfer the control of the, certainly the internal affairs of the country, to the Pharisees, to the Prussian. Um, in the Gemara, there's many references to the fact that her brother was the leader of the Orthodox Jewish party. Roshim ben Shatak, one of the Tanoim, mentioned, of course, all over in Pergeobos and other places like that. And so, uh, as a result, during the nine years that she was the queen, and she was in her 60s and 70s, that was the problem. She was already uh, not young at the time power came to her hands. But during that period, there was a respite from the wars and the fighting, uh, simply because uh, the 
Prushim, the Pharisees, sort of won out, and they had in control of the government. And Im Josephus says they restored all the Drabonans and all kind of other things that had been abolished. And even someone like Josephus, who didn't like the Pharisees, says that they command the allegiance and the tumultuous acclaim of the masses. And that means that the public, broad public, uh, favored the government, and so there was uh, peace and, and there was prosperity and all that good stuff. But then she died. Shlomis. And then uh, she died. Uh, the problem is that she may have been personally like that. She was, after all, not a Maccabee. She'd been married to one. Actually, she was married to two. Uh, she was not from that family. She was what you call from a religious family. Uh, but her children were Chashmanan. We're from the Maccabee dynasty. And they were like the father, and not like the mother. They were, to put in shorthand, Sadukim. They were two people, two brothers, Hyrcanus and Aristobulus, who uh, seem, as far as we can tell, to resemble the father in the sense that they wanted to grab power and uh, expand through wars and rule in the Sadducee manner and uh, go in their merry way. Because that's what everybody had been doing until then. And that is what you did in the old days if you had a kingdom. Uh, power is there to be used. And, uh, you know, there's still plenty of land if that's where you want to go to expand it in the Middle East. You can go this way and that way. And uh, that was their intention. Now, the queen herself, as I say, had come to power at a late period in her life, relatively late period in her life. She was in, as I said, she was in her 70s when she died. Uh, already, during her reign, the uh, younger son of the two, Aristobulus, had, had shown that he was a good friend of the Tzedukim. He was a Sadducee himself. He uh, told his mother, no, in certain terms, he was disgusted with her attitude. Uh, he said that the idea that they're allowing the power in the hands of the Pharisees was a real disgrace and a real attack on the loyal Sadducees who had supported uh, the earlier kings. And, you know, in other words, what kind of power is this? The first rule in politics is you reward your friends and punish your enemies, not the other way around. And uh, it was clear that if he comes into power, it's going to be trouble. On the other hand, uh, she wasn't strong enough, it seems, to control him. And uh, when she died, which in the middle of the 60s BC, uh, so then the question was, who's going to take over? And as is the case in any kind of dynastic situation, you have two brothers roughly the same age, and each one's a power. You've got a civil war in your hands. And that's exactly what happened. A struggle for power broke out between the two uh, rulers, which means each one got money and, and, and weapons and soldiers on their side. And here begins uh, one of the central tragedies of this entire period that we're covering in these uh, lectures, this 130 or so years in Jewish history. They come fr from, from the time that she died, and I don't know why, nobody, we don't have enough information. I told you at the beginning of last uh, uh, lecture that we're dealing with a period of history in which there's a lot of guesswork involved try to put together as best you can, based on the very few sources we have, what happened. But one thing seems pretty clear, and that is, from the time of the death of the queen, the uh, rabbis, the Orthodox Jews, are completely marginalized in the political sense they have no power whatsoever. They don't seem to be actors anymore. And the reason is because the rabbis didn't have an army. Some people may remember Stalin's famous remark, he says, how many divisions does the Pope have? And uh, that's the kind of real politic that these guys dealt with. And it wasn't like it had been earlier where moral authority counts, political authority counts, how much of the population do you have supporting your general views counts as political factors. Here it was very simple. Who's got more soldiers? And uh, from then on, uh, the rabbis, to use a contemporary term, the Prushim in general and all that, were uh, pushed to the side. And as far as we can tell, whether it's from the two sources, whether it's from Josephus on the one hand, who doesn't make any reference to them whatsoever, because he's writing a political history and they had no role. Or even from the Gemara in such places, in rabbinical literature. Um, they were forced to look from the sidelines. And this is a basic fact of Jewish life in Eretz Yisrael, which existed down to the destruction of the Beis Migdash, and then things changed radically. After the Beis Migdash, the rabbis got the power, as we'll see. Uh, but for this period of 130 years or so, uh, they seem to have zero power. And this was a big tragedy because of what's about to unfold. And that has to do with the following. Now let's get the other map. Here, as you see very briefly before we uh, uh, leave it, is 
what the uh, state of Israel, or the kingdom of Judea, if you want to be technical, uh, looked like at the time over there. And it's a pretty large, compact area, and it was a land of uh, peace and prosperity, and the queen, by the time she had finished her administration, had built it up on a pretty good basis. Right? They had a large army, other countries were afraid of them, there was economic prosperity, there was social peace and order, and things like that. And then, trouble happened, because the two brothers started fighting it out. It got very sordid whenever you have these kind of uh, battles. As are very common in history, we have battles between two brothers for the throne. It happened in almost every country in European history, uh, and other countries as well, I might say. When this happened, so uh, the two sides were contending with each other. Um, there's a famous story in the Gemara to give you an idea of the fact that the rabbis in the Gemara, as I say before, didn't approve of either of them. They said both sides were a bunch of bums. Uh, the death of Choni Magel. Um, many people remember the story of the great Sadiq who used to draw a circle around, the Mishnah says, and pray for rain. And uh, there are different versions of how he died. Yeah, some people ask me this at the end of the last class. You just have to understand, when you get to uh, rabbinic literature, whether it's the Gemara in its different parts, the Talmud Babi, Talmud Yerushalmi, or the other branches of rabbinic literature, the Mishnah, the Tosefta, the Medrash, and so forth, sometimes you have just different versions of a story. Um, which is the correct one? Maybe they all fit together in some grand pattern. That's one approach to trying to work it out. There are those who do that. Or maybe they simply represent different traditions. We don't know which one is so. Or maybe they're telling you, uh, you know, stories at different levels of a meaning. But the fact is that when you get to Choni Amagel, for example, I'm sure many people have heard uh, at Shvat, I don't know if they still celebrate that, uh, but they used to tell the story all the time where he's sleeping and, you know, a Jewish River Van Winkle, remember this? from your youth, and, uh, you know, Olam Bacharubah Matsasi, that he found the tree, he slept for 70 years, and uh, then he woke up, and then he, he had no friends, he wanted to die, and that's how he died. That's a very famous story. That's one version of it. There's another version of the story that says that the way he died was during the civil war between these two brothers, where one was besieging the other in Jerusalem. Uh, I forget which one was besieging which one, but it doesn't matter. And he was dragged in to say, uh, they said, since you're such a tremendous Miss Palel prayer, so we want you to pray on behalf of our side that the other side should lose. And he basically said, God, don't help either of them. And they killed him. And the reason that story, I mean, the, the message, certainly behind that story, anymore, is a plague on both your houses. Both sides were bad. Right? And uh, so first uh, one brother won, then the other brother won, but it doesn't matter. And the great trouble is that just at this moment, the worst possible thing could happen, and that is that the Romans showed up. Not because the Romans had any intention of interfering or conquering Eretz Yisrael. Bad luck. Bad mazel. Uh, this goes back to the history of Rome, which originally, as you can sort of see from the different colors on this map, re uh, represents the fact that, you know, Rome was first this big, and then it got, in a later period, it got added this, and in a later period, it added that. So at the time I'm talking about, it was the Roman Republic still, so it wasn't this whole map, but this whole area that you call today Turkey, was a big scene of conflict. Uh, suffice it to say that the Romans who were located here had expanded eastward already back in the time before Hanukkah. And uh, actually, the father of Antiochus IV, the father of the evil <coughs> king of Hanukkah, was defeated by the Romans in a big battle and he lost this whole area to Rome. Uh, the Battle of Magnesia in 193 BC. And uh, this was a lot of tension over here in this area, which is called Asia Minor. You have all kinds of different kingdoms, as you can sort of see by the different colors, sort of. And uh, the bottom line is that one of the kings over here in this area, Pontus, was Mithridates. And Mithridates was uh, a, a, a powerful ruler, and he clashed with Rome. The details need not concern us here. There were three Mithridatic wars, actually, in the 80s, 70s, and 60s BC. And uh, in the beginning, uh, he was winning, believe it or not. Uh, it's very, not often that the Roman armies lost. Uh, very rare, and, and he, his generals beat him once or twice. But then in the end, the Romans came back on and on and on, and uh, they had these, uh, the Roman army this time was at its peak of uh, efficiency, and the famous general Lucullus and all this, and the result is that the Romans beat him and conquered this whole area, and even took a chunk of this, uh, uh, Armenia. So the Romans were on a roll. None of this has to do with Eretz Yisrael. Look where Israel is in relation to this. It's not far off, but it's far from the scene of battle. Again, I'm talking about wars that took place up here, and Israel's down here. So the way it should have been was that uh, Shlomo Alexander should have lived another 20 years, 
this is what I'm saying. Shlomo Tzadik should have lived another 20 years. Uh, her brother or somebody like that, Shem Shetik, was a smart person, should have continued to run the, 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 the prime minister position. Um, Eretz Yisrael, the kingdom of Judea, look how small it is in the Roman scheme. Right? I mean, you can't, there's the, the whole of Israel, and here's the Roman Republican Empire. Okay? So this is a small, it's like Luxembourg against Russia. And, well, it is. So, you know, when you look, because we're Jewish, so we're interested, oh, he had the Gaza Strip and the Galilee. That's a big deal. And it is to us, you know? It, even today, it is to us. But in the grand scheme of things, in, 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 with, with Rome was playing, uh, you know, major leagues. And uh, here's the point. And I always refer to this as the tragedy of Roman-Jewish relations. Uh, as we'll see in a second, the Romans ended up coming, for a variety of reasons, up to the borders of Israel. Suppose, as I said before, that uh, the right people had been in charge of the country. The wise people had been in charge of the country. Then what, what I suppose what would happen would have been the following. Here's Rome. Okay, you're the top dog now. It used to be the Greeks. Before that, the Persians. Uh, Israel today is not exactly what you call a world power. There's always somebody in charge. At that time, the superpower would have been Rome. There are no essential clashes between the state of Israel on the one hand and the Roman Empire on the other. Right? What do the Romans need all this for? Uh, seriously. What do they need this for? The answer is if they need it all, just as an if, 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 it's an avenue to march armies through or things like that. Or maybe if you want to get a little more technical, pay tax them because the Romans were always rapacious and the generals and the governors always wanted a lot of money and bribes and things like that. Fine, but that's doable. The bottom line is they would have left Israel alone essentially. Uh, it would have been a satellite, small piece, small cog, in the larger Roman scheme, and uh, Shalom al-Yisrael, literally. Okay? Everything would have been good. And you may be certain that had she lived longer, and had her ministers been in charge, and uh, you know, people like the rabbis, uh, their attitude never was one of let's get involved in major conflict with world powers. Uh, a major theme of the Torah, a major theme of the Tanakh, is we Jews are never going to be a large people. That's a basic fact of our history. You, know, you don't have to know that much arithmetic and demography to understand that we are not the Roman Empire, and we're not Russia. We're not even Texas. You know? There's, there's an, there's, Israel's never been this large. And uh, if God said to Abraham that we're going to be like the stars of the sky, he probably meant something that you're going to be outstanding, shine in the sky, you know, like, because the Jews, in other words, have always been qualitatively impressive, but not quantitatively impressive. Okay? And so therefore, the idea of thinking, but what's it, what, you're going to conquer Lebanon? You're going to conquer the, the, the Syria? I mean, that's not our agenda. You see? That's the rabbinical mindset, what I just described to you. And therefore, the proper policy is to concentrate all your resources on your home. So to put it in, in uh, contemporary terms, just concentrate on Torah and Avodah and Gemil Sassan. You know, uh, the, you have, they, they had a base on Migdosh. They had their own country. Uh, theoretically, everything was okay. Um, you know, it's never perfect, but it's pretty good. And uh, Rome is, no, is nothing but the successor of the Seleucid Empire or the Alexander Empire. Or the Rome, uh, you know, and after Rome will come another one. And after Rome will come another one. And that's it, right? I mean, does the state of Israel really care who wins a war, you know, in, in, in Southeast Asia or something like that? You know, unless it somehow it'll direct or, or, or in far-off territory. Uh, the world will never be ending, you know, there, there will never be an end to conflict, let's say. Uh, not until Mashiach time, and it's not even clear among the Rishon whether even Mashiach time be an end to conflict. And so, around the world. But uh, we want peace for ourselves. And so my point is, they could have worked out a modus vivendi with Rome and the Roman Empire uh, pretty easily, um, it seems, because the Romans did not have the conquest of the Jews and the ruling of Israel as a, as a big item on their agenda. Uh, the Romans had Bigger fish to fry, as they say. And the result is that it would have worked out okay. You see, there are countries and there are situations in which there are fundamental conflicts. And, uh, you know, one country is blocking the other country or something like that. Or one country is a constant threat to the other country. And that's going to cause wars. There may be ancient um, ethnic conflicts, for example, the Jews and the Arabs of things of this nature, uh, which, for better or worse, are just there and are going to, you know, they'll be fighting uh, forever. Uh, look at Iraq. They were fighting northern Iraq and southern Iraq and been fighting in a time of before the Bible, you know, before Avram Avinu's time, literally. Ashur is in northern Iraq, Babel is in southern Iraq, and it's still going on exactly today. So these are fundamental ancient uh, conflicts. This did not exist when you're talking about Rome, which, as you know, started in far of Italy on the one hand, 
and uh, the Jews on, on the other hand. I might even add that there was already a Jewish, at the time I'm talking about, there was a not inconsiderable Jewish community in the city of Rome itself. Okay? Uh, Cicero, who lived at this time, gave a famous speech where he more or less said, you can't throw a brick without hitting a Jewish a lawyer. And because uh, <laughs> he was, he was, the, he was uh, defending uh, a corrupt official, Flaccus, against uh, the countercharges, part of which was they were stealing money, you know, from the Jews, and they had these Jewish lawyers there. You, you, you look it up, you'll see. So uh, the Romans were not exactly unfamiliar with the Jews. To buttress the case, if you look in the Book of Maccabees, the Romans actually had a formal alliance of friendship with the, Rome, with the Jews going back to Judah Maccabees' time, which was renewed by every Jewish ruler. You know, this is like a detail of our diplomatic history. Judah Maccabees and Yonason, and then Shimon, and then Alexander Yanai, and others, constantly renewed this uh, policy. So I keep emphasizing there was, nothing, there was nothing necessary in this. But it didn't happen that way, because people like the rabbi were pushed to the side, and other power-hungry politicians uh, took over, and the Romans never hopped this. This is a great tragedy. Uh, what the Romans should have done, from their own point of view, was back the yeshivas. Right? Because back that group in the population which says, just sit and learn. You know, just do Shemitah. Carbonus. You know, from the Roman point of view, that would have been the best thing. They never got it. You know, it's, 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 it's a real tragedy. They never, they, they never got that. The best policy they would have, they would have had a country with no rebellions, with complete tranquility, Everybody would have been happy, and, and, it, and, it, and it didn't go that way. Now, the um, specifics are that, as I say before, the Romans got involved in this war up here. Uh, once they finished, in the middle, the generals were switched. It was Lucullus, and then it switched to Pompey. You may remember Caesar and Pompey. That's the guy, the famous Pompey the Great. And the reason he's called Pompey the Great, among other reasons, is he was a brilliant general and even, an even more brilliant administrator, and one of his brilliances was he conquered the Middle East. And... Uh, in 65, he was over here. In 64, he took over Syria, and that brought him right up to here in 63 BCE, right when the war is going on between the two brothers. And A had beat B, and then B had beat A, and back and forth. And as soon as they find out that Pompey's general, uh, Scaurus, is, is on the scene, the Romans are here. Let's go get them on our side, because obviously, whoever wins, uh, the Romans on their side will win the civil war. And once again, we have this phenomenon that the Ghazal, say, goes back to Yaakov and all that, uh, Ramban, uh, which is, uh, you bring in an enemy to settle a conflict among yourselves. Okay? The state of Israel, unfortunately, has done this on a number of occasions, and uh, they sure did it this time, and so the two brothers immediately sent delegations uh, to bribe them, uh, 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 Pompey and his generals. Uh, the rabbis, by the way, the Pharisees, sent a delegation, they were sort of pushed to the side. Because as I say before, you know, how many, how many divisions do you have? And uh, like I said before, the fact that they had the public on this doesn't matter in the mindset of Roman generals who had just been finished a 30-year war, uh, a constant fight between Marius and Sulla, and then the Mithridatic Wars, and then the wars uh, to take over the uh, Seleucid Empire, and then Pompey had just finished a whole huge campaign to wipe out the pirates who ruled 50, 50 miles all through this territory over here. I mean, you're talking about uh, seasoned veteran soldiers, and they understand the booty and loot, and killing, and that sort of thing. And so the result is that um, Pompey, who was a very able, unfortunately, Roman leader, he immediately had in front of him the opportunity to decide who should be the next ruler of the Jews. On the one hand, he had Aristobulus, uh, the younger brother, who was more vigorous and, and warlike, and as we would say today, much more of a macho guy. On the other hand, he had this guy, uh, Hyrcanus, who was much more of a wimpy type, uh, very clearly, and uh, was uh, much more manipulatable. And uh, that's, of course, who he chose. Yeah? From the Roman point of view, you want the uh, weaker one. And uh, he said, I side with uh, Hyrcanus. He's the older one and things of this nature. The real reason, it seems, from Josephus is that um, he had been gotten to with a number of interesting arguments, not only money, by a very crafty individual who now makes his appearance, unfortunate appearance in Jewish history, Antipater, that's a Greek name, Antipater, uh, who was a Jewish general who had insinuated himself into the councils of Hyrcanus, the older brother, the wimpy one, and seems to have been, uh, unfortunately, psychologically very brilliant in realizing that when you de deal with a weak person, if you know how to press the right buttons, you can totally control them. Now, I'm not saying it's not possible with a strong person either, but with a weak person it's particularly possible because you play on their fears and you build up their vanity 
And you can just use your imagination, and it's not far from what actually happened. Now, Antipater was, we're told, by uh, Josephus, um, the son of an Edomite convert. But herein lies the tale, because, as we said before, the Hashemunayim, as you saw before, uh, John Herkinus and Judea Stoblis and Alexander Yanni, those three names I keep coming back to, uh, were great conquerors. But having gone through all the junk that the Jews had gone through at the time of the Maccabean Wars and beforehand, uh, they were determined not only to conquer Eretz Yisrael, but to have no uh, Palestinian problem. Seriously. Now, uh, they didn't want, as they had had since the beginning of the Second Temple period, minorities of non-Jews who were going to cause trouble, stab them in the back. And so they were determined to make the whole country Jewish. And so what they did is they forcibly converted the conquered peoples to Judaism. Okay? Now, uh, is this right? Is this wrong? Who knows? When I say who knows, is we don't really know today. If you want to be honest about it, we don't know exactly how Gairus worked long ago. We know the laws of Gairus as they've come out today. Uh, some will know what I'm talking about when I say the Gemara and Shabbos talks about such a thing as a Gairus and his Garaban Agon. We've never even heard there's such a thing called Shabbos. Right? So uh, I know the way the laws of conversion have eventually come together in the Talmudic and post-Talmudic period to constitute the set of laws which have been around now for 15, 16, 1700 years. We're talking about before that. And uh, there's all kind of interesting shittas in the Gemara and the Rishonim on how they used to do it once upon a time. So, uh, did he do the right thing? Did he do the wrong thing? Obviously, in retrospect, he did the wrong thing, but we have no record whatsoever whether the Chacham approved or disapproved of these policies. It's not mentioned anywhere. They did it. And the reason they did it is pretty obvious, like I said before. After all, he says, the only people in this country are Jewish. Either those who were born Jewish or poor people who make, make Jewish. And if you don't like it, leave the country or something like that. And so the result is that you had a lot of people who were Jewish and not Jewish. In other words, had major identity issues. It's scary. You have this situation in the state of Israel today, as you know. Uh, without getting too political, the history is repeating itself. We, with all the politics that's going wrong all around that we read about in the papers with the conversions that are uh, taking place in Israel now, um, and for some time. So you certainly had it at that time, and uh, the result was you had a large Edomite population and other populations, there are even some, those who theorize that these are the Ami Ha'aretz that they refer to in the Mishnah, and Demai and so forth, uh, that had ambivalent attitudes, one suspects, towards Judaism, and uh, thought, let's put it this way, didn't have the same sensitivity to the others. Those are exactly the type of guys that people like Alexander Yanai, who was, when all said and done, a dictator, uh, would employ precisely because it's a classic move in history to take members of an unpopular minority and give them power because then they're dependent on you for their source of power and can't have a popular base among the broad Jewish population. The guy we're talking about, Antipater, was the son of a great general in the time of Alexander Yanai. He was a big shot, and now he m maneuvered himself, we're told, into the co uh, confidence of the wimpy brother, and he also hooked up with the Romans, and he basically said, you put my guy in there and I'll be your satellite, I'll be your stooge, and the deal was fixed. And that's what happened. And for uh, close to 100 years, these guys were in charge. Him and his son. The son is Herod. Right? So when you go to Israel, I can't stand this, but I understand why. If you go on most tours, they'll show Herod the Great built this, and all that, all of which is 100% true, uh, but they shouldn't be extolling him, as we'll see before we're done uh, tonight, I believe. So the Romans, for their own sneaky reasons, and you can't fault them, they're following what's good for their policy, not what's good for ours. They put in the wimpy brother, Hyrcanus, to be the head guy. They rearranged the borders of Israel a little bit. Pompey was very clever about that. Took away a little province here, added one here to show that we're boss now, and that if you're the ruler, you're ruler by our say-so. And, uh, and don't have any illusions about that. The losing brother was not smart enough to realize that if the Romans say it, it's a fact. And he wouldn't accept it, whereupon Pompey immediately uh, launched a lightning invasion of the kingdom of Judea, and before you know it, he was besieging Jerusalem, and even Aristobus, even the brother, surrendered at that point, but his men kept on fighting in the base of Migdosh. Josephus says that the uh, Romans, being clever, uh, worked their siege engines around the base of Migdosh on Saturdays, because they knew the Jews would fight defensively, but they won't go offensively, and so you can go and 
uh, get away with that sort of thing. And to make a long story short, they captured, uh, stormed the base of The first guy over the walls, according to Plutarch, was a Roman lieutenant named Mark Antony. And that's how he got famous. And, uh, and they captured the base of Migdosh. I'm not talking about Tishabov over here at all. I'm talking about something happened 160 years before, 130 years before Tishabov. Okay? Uh, when the first Roman capture of the base of Migdosh, the story is told that uh, when Pompey, uh, leading the army, came to the base of Migdosh, he found the Kongala, pretty much put a, a knife to his throat, and he says, where it went to, he went into the Kodesh Kodoshim, uh, which was an empty room in the Second Temple. I'm sure as many are aware, in the Second Temple period, they did not have an Ark and Aron and all the things that they had in the First Temple. Um, if you learn the Mishnahis and Yuma and so forth, everyone knows this. And, uh, and he was shocked, and he said, where did you hide the golden ass? And the reason is that the, there was a very uh, strong uh, legend about the Jews. Just as we have, unfortunately, very strong legends about the Jews today, for example, the protocols of the Elder Zion, which more people believe in the world than do not. I'll say it again, more people in the world believe it than do not believe it. Uh, so at that time, the Jews had waged a long struggle with, in here, in, in Israel, with another one of these groups, which they uh, converted one way or another, the Kusim, the Samaritans as they call them. Uh, these are hereditary enemies going back for hundreds and hundreds of years. The Samaritans claim to be the real Jews. The Jews claim to be the real Jews. The Jews say the real temple is supposed to be in Jerusalem and Har Maria. The Samaritans say, no, you changed the Bible. The real temple is supposed to be in Har Grizim and Shechem. Uh, if you think this is funny, the Koran writes along these same lines also, that the Jews changed the Bible to fix it, and we have the real thing. And uh, it's, again, more people believe their version than believe ours. And uh, when the Hashmanoim among in their wars that I just described captured and destroyed the Samaritan temple. So we're told that they found an idol in their Kodesh Kodashim, a Demusiona, um, which means that even though they claimed to be Jewish, but secretly they were having a kind of a cult in which they worshipped some kind of an image. So they launched a counter-propaganda and said the Jews have the same thing also. Uh, they have a boy, a big statue made out of gold of a boy riding on a donkey, the golden ass, and uh, solid gold, and Pompey, being Pompey, one you know anything that's made out of gold, and uh, the Kohen Gadol and the other guy said there is no such thing as just a lie, and he said I'm going to kill you. All the rest. It took a lot of persuading to persuade him that actually the whole thing But the bottom line is that the Romans seized everything, they conquered everything. Aristobulus was taken away in captivity. So were his sons. So were his followers. He was uh, led two years later in Pompey's very famous uh, triumph parade. You know, that's the uh, height of the Roman religion is to have a, tr a triumphal uh, parade. It's like a, more than a big thing in their religion. And uh, w in which Pompey brought back all the booty and all the captured kings from the east. And uh, Aristobus was in there and he put him in jail with his sons, although we haven't heard the last of him. Now, the, uh, who was left in charge in Eretz Yisrael? Uh, the Wimpy brother, Hyrcanus, and uh, the real power behind the throne, the evil manipulative Antipater. And this is from 63, 62, 61 B.C. for the next decade. Now, if you want to understand closely, and I'm not going to do this to you, if you want to understand closely what happens in Jewish history during this period, you have to be a Bucky in the history of the Roman Civil Wars. Because unfortunately, since they ruled us, so whoever's in charge here totally affects what happens over here. So for example, from 61 down to around 53 or so, 52, 51, uh, Pompey, who had come back to Rome, uh, his supporters, not all of them, but many of them, were left in positions of power throughout the Middle East. Um, in 55 or 54, something like that, one of his top lieutenants named Gabinius was sent to the east to uh, keep order and make sure that uh, Rome's wishes and Pompey's wishes are being uh, fulfilled. On the other hand, back in Rome, it was a snake pit. This is the famous period of the triumvirates. This is the famous period, maybe you remember from high school and such places, that uh, you know, the Romans were engaged in constant uh, struggles. There was basically one long Roman civil war from approximately the year 100 B.C. till the year 30 B.C. So for 70 years, there was a constant civil war, first between Marius and Sulla, and then between uh, other groups, you don't have to know all this, the Optimates and the Plebeians, and the uh, bottom line is that power was a football constantly being 
It's thrown back and forth. The Senate was a cauldron of different uh, cliques. And as I say, the Roman politics was full of, uh, of very uh, bitter struggles for dominance in the Senate. Um, and it's always that way in any Congress. I mean, we have bitter power struggles, but they got violent. Okay? And uh, as I say, the question of who rules in Rome affects who gets to appoint the governors and things like that over here. Antipater, who had been put into power by Pompey, was Pompey's boy. Okay? So whatever happens in the power struggles in Rome, he's going to be loyal to the Republican Party, you know, to the Progressive Party, he's to, to the Pompey Party. You understand? But there were other parties, the, uh, as I said before, they emerged very famously in the 50s BCE, uh, the first triumvirate of, of Pompey on the one hand and Julius Caesar, the guys Julius Caesar on the other hand, who was 30, 30 some years old, and uh, Marcus uh, Licinius Crassus, the rich guy, on the, uh, on the third hand, and uh, let's put it this way, between the number of seats that he bought and the number of seats that he bought and the number of seats he bought, you got 51%. You get it? Which is not the last time this has happened in electoral history, but uh, so they were power brokers, and uh, that's the way it worked out. However, as we all know in history, these kind of things don't last long because nobody likes the other one. Politics makes strange bedfellows, and in Rome, uh, you have the violence factor to throw into as well. And so, um, in 54, in the year 55 and 54, Gabinius was sent here uh, to supervise Pompey's uh, interests, as it were, in the politics of Rome. Very important to us because we're standing in the three weeks right now. And that is, the Gemara says that Mishabotla uh, Sanhedrin, I think, I believe that's how it goes. Which means, you know, nobody listens to music in the three weeks. It doesn't exactly say anywhere you can't listen to music in the three weeks. Which, by the way, is why the Sephardim don't have, don't have this restriction. Um, it's a minhagim. Uh, if there is any kind of prohibition on listening to music, all the rest of it, it's mentioned a few places more as something that applies all year long. And uh, one very famous example of this is um, when the Sanhedrin was abolished. Well, when was the Sanhedrin abolished? Uh, this is an unclear statement, but I can tell you what a very famous historian, uh, the Doris Rishonim, suggests. And, that, and it, he has pr uh, proofs to it. And he was a big Talmud Chacham, too. Uh, he says it was the mission with, when Gabinius came uh, to the Middle East on behalf of Pompey. At that time, Antipater is ruling Israel, but the Jewish people hate it. And the reason the Jewish people hate it is perfectly understandable. Here we are. How can we go from here to here? Five minutes ago, we were a strong country um, with a good army, and Shlomus Alexandra, and we were on top, and we had our independence, and everything was going good. And now, overnight, you know, without even a big war, uh, we've lost everything. The Romans have the control. And they've put somebody who was universally hated by the Jews as the power behind the throne and the real uh, dictator of the country, which means anybody who protested was bumped off in some fashion or another, or otherwise silenced. Um, National treasures were given to the Romans. The young generation in particular is a big problem in Jewish politics for the next 130 years. The young generation, as I said before, looks back and says, you know, where, how, how did our elders mess it up that we went from full independence and prosperity to the opposite? Uh, we have to undo this national shame. The middle-aged people and the older people who were uh, wiser all through this period of 130 years, they said, turn the other cheek. Because you have no choice. You can't take on Rome. It won't work. Um, the history of this period is characterized by this ongoing tension among the Jews in Eretz Yisrael, which was not exclusively, but very heavily, a generation gap between those who saw everything in a black and white terms and says we cannot allow the status quo to continue and we have to do something to throw Rome off our off our shoulders, and uh, eventually you'll see, as time went on, they even got into escapism. They said, if we can't do it, I'll be derechateva. We'll do it. Shalom al derechateva. We'll do it through miracles, and people step forward and say, I'm the Mashiach, I'm the Mashiach, I'm the leader, and all the rest of it, and they're going to come and do all kinds of miraculous things against Rome, versus the others, uh, who were generally, you know, the rabbis were definitely in the second group, who said, don't fool yourself, don't do this, uh, we don't want to go there um, the status quo stinks uh, but it could be worse and as I say before, grin and bear it because you have no choice and uh, 
by the time the 130 years are over, as we'll see, that policy no longer was sustainable, unfortunately, in the minds of the majority or, or of many Jews. I can't say the majority because we don't know, but of many Jews. But you can understand the tensions that I'm talking about. So therefore, all through the period I, I, I'm referring to, specifically in the 50s, the 40s, and others, there were uprisings by Jews, different Jewish factions, against uh, the Romans, or more exactly against the regime, which is Antipater and all his guys, which they see as a kind of a mafia who seized control of the country, which was exactly true. The only difference is the Romans were wise enough, and Antipater was wise enough not to take on the Jewish religion directly. That was a mistake they learned from the Maccabean Revolt. The Romans, by their nature, never were into destroying another uh, uh, people's religion. That's an interesting fact. The Roman Empire went on for hundreds and hundreds of years. But in the Roman Empire that you see over there was a vast multitude of different religious groups. One of the main reasons is that the Romans had a particular religion by the rules of which you're not allowed to join. Because you may recall from uh, school, they actually worshipped their ancestors, the Lars and Panaras and things like that. And so, not only do I not want to missionize you, I wouldn't allow you if you wanted to join. So that was good for the Jews, you know. So that complicated things. Because in the time of Judah Maccabee, it's kind of black and white. If they're taking on Shabbos, they're taking on the Torah, they're out to destroy the Jewish religion, that turns into a black and white issue. It simplified political matters. There was nowhere to go. Even the most pacific Jews, as I mentioned last week, joined the Maccabean armies because even a trapped rat will fight. But it wasn't like that with the Romans. They didn't say you can't keep Shabbos. Uh, as a matter of fact, not only that, the Romans eventually, once they had the emperor system, paid for daily carbon as they did for every other kind of cult and religion, which means they co-opted the religious establishment, which is a classic colonialist and imperialist policy, pursued in the 19th century very successfully by the British, the French, and many others. And uh, the result was that it wasn't a black and white situation. You know, it never was, here we are, things are getting so bad we have to uh, revolt. It's not so bad. You know, it's bad, it could be worse. And this muddied the waters turned it, as I said before, very far from being a clear political uh, struggle and, uh, and, what should I say, messed things up uh, uh, radically. So, uh, what I was saying was that Gabinius comes to the Middle East. Right then, there's a big revolt by, uh, uh, what, by a prince of the Hashmanoim. You know, the, the guy who was sent to Rome, his son escaped and then came back and launched a revolt. The uh, Antipater himself and the Romans are very successful in suppressing all these revolts. Um, the trouble is, in the period I'm talking about, the Romans were at their peak of their uh, game. Uh, it was all a science to them. Uh, the art of war was really the science of war. If you say the Romans, the Jews didn't have a chance. Certainly not by derechateva, shall we say, not by normal means. Uh, really, if you study this period, the Romans said there's a way to besiege a city, there's a way to launch a frontal attack. They have books about this that are still around today. They're just ways of doing it. And uh, the Jews constantly were uh, crushed. In the course of all this, the son of Antipater, which is Herod Hordus, he comes in history the first time as just killing people who he thinks are rebels without giving them a trial. He was hauled before the Sanhedrin. Uh, he dared the Sanhedrin to do anything to him. The Sanhedrin was scared and didn't touch him because, after all, he came with, 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 with soldiers. Uh, this itself radically uh, decreased the prestige of law and order because once you see that people are untouchable, so then, you know, it's all a matter of naked power. Uh, and in the course of all this sort of thing, Gabinius abolished the Sanhedrin. That's what it seems. And uh, the Jews were so affected by this, the Gemara tells us, or the Mishnah tells you, that uh, that they you know, sort of uh, prohibited or, or, or reduced uh, music. So we're actually going back to a little incident in the 50s, which has to do with what we're talking about over here. Um, now, I don't want to get too bogged down in all these details. You get the picture from what I'm talking about. And uh, as the 50s went on, eventually the triumvirate fell apart. Uh, Crassus, the third guy, came the year later to take over as, con as the ruler over here, but he robbed the base of Midrash, took all the money away, uh, came with a big army to attack the Parthians because he figured, like George Book, he's going to conquer Iraq. His army was wiped out. Very unusual in Roman history, but it was one of those cases where the army was wiped out. Uh, which, by the way, from the uh, Jewish point of view, is actually a very crucial period in Jewish a date in Jewish history. Not that many people know about it. The Battle of Carre in 54 BCE, because it meant that the Romans never would conquer Parthia, which meant that the largest Jewish community, which is in Bavel, never would be under Rome. You understand? If the Romans had ever ruled all the Jews here and here, 
Who knows what they might have thought of? It would be like Haman. But the Romans always knew that whatever they do to the Jews here, there's still a large Jewish group there. And this is not my statement. There are Jews who make this speech um, in the year 35 CE, you know, to the Emperor Caligula. So, uh, 38 CE. And, uh, you know, the Romans knew this, and that moderates, you know, your, your ambitions, shall we say. Anyhow, so it turned out to be a war then between the, the two guys that left Pompey and, and, and Caesar, and without going into all the details, Pompey's guys get Caesar kicked out to go fight the Vietnam War, because this is all one big jungle, they call it now France, the downtown was Gaul, and everybody's shocked, Julius Caesar goes and proves out to be the greatest general in military history or so forth, and conquers quickly all of Gaul and these brilliant victories, comes back, has a big battle with Pompey, Pompey gets knocked out in the Battle of Pharsalia, gets killed in Egypt. You see what I'm talking about, where the, the war picks up, and then they're dropping like flies. And uh, as you know, shortly after this, um, Caesar gets assassinated. I might add that, um, to show you how clever this guy Antipater was, uh, he had backed the wrong team, because Pompey lost. Right? And so all the Jews in Israel figured, finally, got him. Back to loser, uh, Caesar's going to kill him. But Antipater was so clever that what really happened was Julius Caesar landed here right at, uh, chasing after Pompey. He landed in Alexandria uh, with a small force. Uh, he got himself involved with arguments with the Egyptians. And next thing you know, he's trapped and the Egyptians are having a huge army trying to wipe him out. And he's holding out in a fortress over here. And uh, he won in the end, but they didn't know it at the time. And Antipater immediately comes to his rescue. Or the truth is, by the time he comes, Caesar's men have come to reinforce him. And Caesar won another victory. But meanwhile, Antipater looks like a good guy because he changed teams in the middle. And uh, the Jews said, <clears throat> you know, <laughs> well, it was really fun. I say all that, I mean, I know it sounds funny to us all that, but you have to understand the extraordinary frustration and the uh, malfunctioning uh, of the political process in Eretz Yisrael that I'm describing over here. Because how do you get along in the middle when, the whole war is, when the whole world is really going crazy? And that's what I'm talking about. And as I say before, not long afterwards, Julius Caesar went back to Rome. And, you know, he got assassinated, and then you may remember... Uh, that there was a, a battle between, the, eventually, you know, in the second triumvirate, and so there was a battle between the assassins of Caesar on the one hand and the avengers, you might say, of Caesar on the other hand, over here in Philippi, in the year of 42, I think, and uh, the avengers of Caesar won, and now the Roman Empire gets redivided over here. In the middle of all this, somebody poisoned Antipater. They finally got him. And uh, because he... It, it, all joking aside, so remember Cassius from the Julius Caesar? So Cassius did it. Now, um, he not only killed him, but he did one good thing. Now, uh, but not so simple, because uh, Antipater was killed, but he left two sons in charge, uh, who were young and able and vigorous. And uh, one was Herod, or Hordus, as they call him in the Gemara, and the other one was his brother, Fasoel. And um, uh, these two guys were just as ruthless as, as the father. And so, they, just when they thought, finally got rid of this, they didn't. And now begins the long career of this guy, Herod, who was one of the great and terrible misfortunes in Jewish history, like the Joseph Stalin of our history. And I say that advisedly. And uh, it's a big chunk, because you're talking about from, what, the 40s BCE, and he died in the year, 40, year 4 CE. So he was there like 50 years. He was in charge of affairs almost all the time. Uh, a ruthless person, uh, clearly not one who believed in Judaism, uh, but who could claim to be a Jew, because of the policies of uh, the forced conversions. You know, the, here, like I said before, I don't know if anybody protested against this when Alexander Yane or John Herkinus and one of these people uh, forcibly converted these people, but it sure came home to roost. This is a truism of our history, that it was a mistake in retrospect, because look what happened as a result of it. And uh, he was able uh, to seize power and hold on to it because he was brilliant politically, like the father, unfortunately. When he uh, came into power, uh, you know, the Roman Empire was split three ways. Uh, this part was given to Mark Antony. This part was given to Octavian. Th no, this part was given to Octavian. The middle was given to Lepidus. Within a short while, this guy Lepidus was knocked out. And so you have two guys contending for power uneasily. Um, Mark Antony, who rules this area, and Octavian rules this area. And the Jews, therefore, fall into the rishus of Mark Antony, which means that Herod has to suck up to Mark Antony, if he wants to keep his power. Now we begin a very uh, complex business. And uh, that is 
characteristic of the history of this period. You begin the, the story about Herod, we have two radically different versions of what happened. Uh, one is in Josephus, pages and pages, I mean, dozens of pages, in unbelievable detail about the career, the scandals, the uh, personal life, the conquests, and all this of, of uh, Herod, which certainly sounds right, and the Gemara and uh, other places which, which give a very different version, it seems. Okay? Uh, and, uh, and there you are. You see? The, um, it's not clear how it all worked out. Um, if you want to read a soap opera, uh, and I, believe me, it's, it's ten soap operas in one, you read uh, Josephus' account of the reign of Herod, which he wasn't there. When Herod died, he had a secretary named Nicholas of Damascus, who we don't even know who was Jewish, probably wasn't even Jewish. And uh, he wrote 10 volumes, 12 volumes, of the life of his former employer. Uh, is it true? Is it not true? Is it fixed up? You know, uh, we don't even have the original, so how can we, you know, give any kind of true opinion of what happened over there? But the outlines are, are, are pretty clear, except in some very controversial points. As far as we're concerned here tonight, the mo most basic point is, he got in and they couldn't get him out. Okay? Uh, within a short time after he took over, Mark Antony, as you know, got involved with Cleopatra. He spent all the time partying with Cleopatra, uh, who, by the way, was always scheming to knock out Herod, so she could take over Eretz Yisrael. And uh, there were many Jews who were in the pro-Cleopatra party, not because they liked her, but because they hated Herod, you know. And, uh, and Mark Antony even gave her, as a gift, the city of Yericho, because that had the oil wells or the palm, uh, the, or the palm oil, which was a big deal at that time. And, you know, the, the palm trees and things like that. Balsam. And uh, it's constant intrigues. And right into this, all of a sudden, there was a Parthian invasion. Uh, the, part, the, the Persians, the, excuse me, the Iraqis, who uh, had defeated and wiped out the Roman army here, now a number of years later, all of a sudden flooded in and took over the Middle East because Mark Antony wasn't watching what's going on. He was spending all the time partying with, uh, with, with Cleopatra. And so the result is that the Romans were caught unprepared and Eretz Yisrael was taken by the, by the Iraqis, by the Parthians. And, it, and, and leading the Jewish wing of the Parthian army, you might say, was uh, the son of Aristobulus, who was the king or the ruler that Pompey had knocked out and sent to Rome, if you can recall that. Uh, I didn't even tell you that when Julius Caesar got into a fight with Pompey, he took Aristobulus, who was still in jail, let him out, and said, you go conquer Israel because you're on my team, and knock out your brother and Aristobulus on the other team, but they poisoned him in Athens. So... <laughs> That's, that's the kind of world in you're, you're dealing with. And his son was also killed. Anyway, uh, but for a short time, three years, um, the Maccabees were back in power. The Hashemunayim. Antigonus, I know it's not a Jewish name, Antigonus was the son of Aristobus, or if you want, the grandson of Shlomus. Okay, that makes sense. And, uh, and he came back, and the Jews were all happy. They got rid of the hated Herod, who ran away first to his special hideout fort that he prepared just for this occasion. And that, of course, I'm referring to Masada, and uh, that's what it was there for, and it worked. And then he ran away to Egypt, and, uh, and he went to Mark Antony, and he said, look at me, I'm, I'm being uh, hated by my own people because I'm on your side. So look how he knew how to insinuate himself in the Romans. And Mark Antony said, you're absolutely right, this is uh, uh, Shanda Nakarpa, and uh, <laughs> uh, you know, we can't let a friend of Rome like you, a loyal friend of Rome, and he was a loyal friend of Rome, uh, be treated this way. And Mark Antony, this is terrible what I'm saying, arranged it, that he should go to Rome and be received by the Senate and Octavian. They, they disagreed on a lot of things, but they agreed on this, and that this guy Herod should be recognized by Rome, officially as the king of the Jews, which was the kiss of death for the Jews. Meanwhile, he was here for three years, but eventually Mark Antony got his act together, and the Romans reconquered all this. Okay? Uh, Herod came back, officially recognized as king of the Jews. Not that the Hashemunim was so great. The Gemara has a very famous story that this ruler that I just talked about, Antigonus, was a Kohen Gadol, among other things. And uh, the story is that on Yom Kippur, you may remember, they say, Mare Kohen, that after the ceremonies are, are, completely, are, are um, completed successfully, the whole crowd goes and accompanies the Kohen Gadol. And, what it says, and this is a very characteristic story. And uh, they were doing this to Antigonus, and then they saw on the other side of the street, Shemayin of Talion, two famous rabbis, and they pretty much dumped him and went over to greet the two rabbis in accordance with what I said before, that the Pharisees were incredibly popular with the masses. There's a reason for that. <laughs> right? Here you have these guys 
they're going for uh, power and uh, money and, uh, you know, ambition and politics, and these are not, okay? Uh, look what Shemayin Naftali say in Pirkei for example, which is avoid power, okay? And um, they go over to greet the Kohen Gadol, and he's Shalom Aleichem B'nei Gerim. You know, he's trying to insult them, because it's very famous, the Shemayin Naftali, who were the head rabbis of the time, were descended from uh, the king of Ashur, and uh, even though it was a long time ago, but still, he's a Hashmanai, he's a Kohen Gadol, he goes back to Aaron, he's Hatsi Tatsi, and uh, he's trying to insult them. And they very famously gave their retort, and they say, it's true that you are genealogically descended from Aaron, but you don't act like him. We, on the other hand, don't come from Aaron, but they perceive that we, that we act like Aaron. And people are more interested in people who act like Aaron than as the son of Aaron, which is a very interesting take on things. And why does Igmar tell us his story? To say, you know, Antigonus was no great person necessarily either. But the point I'm getting at is that, uh, that Herod, when he came back with the Roman armies, was in, and there was basically almost nothing you could do about him for the rest of his reign. There's a little more to it because, as you know, Antony and, Cle uh, Antony and Cleopatra on the one hand fought it out with Octavian on the other hand, uh, without going through all the details. The whole thing was settled by one guy left standing. That's how the Romans settled the civil war. Right? Octavian was left standing at the Battle of Actium, in 31, the uh, fleet of Octavian and, uh, and Mark Inti was uh, destroyed, and uh, they chased him back to Egypt, and as everybody knows, Antony Cleopatra, she killed herself with, a, with a, uh, an asphia, and, uh, and he killed himself, uh, whatever the circumstances are, you know, machlo between Shakespeare and Plutarch, but the, <laughs> but the bottom, line is, bottom line is, one guy was left standing, and this was Octavian, who now became Augustus Caesar, and ruled the whole thing. I mean, that's the only way they could settle the war. There were no peace treaties. They just killed everybody until the last guy was there. But he, but he took over and ruled the whole Roman Empire, which he pretty much invented because he filled in the gaps over here. And uh, everybody thought that Herod now was uh, done for because, once again, he had backed the wrong team. He had backed the Mark Antony side because that was his patron. And they lost. And, you know, in Roman politics, you're on the wrong team. That's it. And once again, unfortunately, he showed his brilliance. He, 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 the, the story is he went to uh, here the island of Rhodes, where, uh, where uh, Octavian was returning back to Rome, and he pretty much went over to him without any guards and said, here I am, you want to kill me, you can kill me, but hear me out first. Uh, you, I know you were going to be angry at me because I was on the other guy's team. I was. The guy was good to me, so I was loyal to him. That's who I am. I stay loyal to my team captain. Uh, if you want, take me on, I'll stay as loyal to you. Or would you rather have somebody that switches back and forth? So take me as you wish. And of course he knew, unfortunately, that this would exactly appeal to Octavian. And uh, he said, I like you, and you're my boy now. And that meant, for the rest of his life, uh, he was untouchable. That meant that uh, from the year uh, 31 or so, when this happened, BCE, uh, till his death, which was 35 years later, uh, Herod was the king of the Jews. Should I stop now? Okay, Herod was the king of the Jews, and uh, the, the Jews hated it. But, as I told you before, this was a tragedy. No one can get to the emperor. No one could get to Octavian, who now became Augustus Caesar, and says, you have the wrong guy there. Because, in the mind of a Roman like Augustus Caesar, the Jews are contentious, bad people, constantly full of rebellions, nothing but trouble. It takes a low life. It takes a barbarian to control them. And so if they're whining about what he does, it's necessary, right? Because he may be a bum, but he's our bum. And as a result, the Jewish people had to settle uh, for the next decades with the dictatorship of this guy. And uh, there was a lot of killing. And I guess I'll, I'll explain uh, all that unsavory business uh, in the next uh, lecture. But let me just conclude by saying that uh, uh, the Chazal and the others consider the period of Herod um, one of the worst periods in Jewish history, one of the worst periods in Jewish history, I say, because now you have a, another mafia to throw into the cauldron. You have the Pharisees, you have the Sadducees, and they have the Herodians, who are not the same. Right? And most of these people probably aren't even Jewish, but they're in power. And Herod, as we'll see, brings in a lot of Arab and Greek settlers into Palestine and sets them up in big cities, which is really the origins of the Palestinians, and uh, has big plans to uh, totally rape the Jewish people, and he did get away with it. So as I said, 
this is a, a sad episode in history. And what makes it even sadder is it was all avoidable. This, none of this For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.